Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Oh, hello, Dromeo. Ha! Why run us that so fast? Do you know me, sir? Am I Dromeo? <laughs> Am I your man? Am I myself? Thou art Dromeo, thou art my man, thou art thyself. I am an ass. I am a woman's man, and besides myself. What woman's man, and how besides thyself? Barry, so besides myself, I'm due to a woman. One that claims me, one that haunts me, one that will have me. <laughs> What claim lays she to thee? Barry, so such claim as you would lay to your horse, and she would have me as a beast. Not that I being a beast you would have me, but that she being a very beastly creature lays claim to me. What is she? A very reverend body. Aye, such a one as a man may not speak of without he say so reverence. I have but lean luck in the match, and yet is she a wondrous fat marriage. Well, how does that mean a fat marriage? Mary, so she's the kitchen wench. An old grease. And I don't know what use to put her to, but to make a lamp of her and run from her by her own light. I warrant her rags and the tallow in them will burn a Poland winter. If she lives till doomsday, she'll burn a week longer than the whole world. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing, your podcast for all things Shakespeare. You have joined us for The Comedy of Errors. And that was an exchange between Antiphilus of Syracuse and Dromeo, his servant, but not really his servant, the twin of his servant. I am joined again by Nora Ankrum. Nora, number one, I'm so glad that you're back. And number two, have we happened upon Shakespeare's most confusing play? That's my opening question <laughs> to you. <laughs> you know, it might be that, that this very well might be the most confusing. It, it's got some competitors, but Yeah. This one's pretty confusing. So we've recently recorded um, these kind of obscure histories like Henry VI, part one, two, and three. And those can be a little bit confusing because there are so many 
like white dudes of middle age that are fighting and betraying each other. And you're like, wait, am I talking to Gloucester now or Duncan and whose side is he on? This one is confusing because we have two sets of twins in the play. And as if that wasn't complicated enough, we could deal with that. But both twins are named the same name. <laughs> both sets of twins are both, both sets named of twins. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. So there's two Dromeos, the servants, both are named Dromeo, and both Antiphiluses, they're like two Antiphiluses and they're twins. And just to make things even more complicated, I watched a version of this play done by the BBC in like 1985. And Nora, they had the same actor play. Yes, the same wow. actor played Antiphilus, both pairs or whatever, both members of the twins and oh the goodness. same actor played Dromeo. And I swear, I swear <laughs> I was watching the thing and I was like, wait a second. Why is everybody so confused? Every, it's like, and then I looked at the little, you know, how Amazon Prime has little almost like liner notes or whatever you would call it. Like. Yeah, trivia yeah, facts. Yeah. And they said that one of the trivia facts listed about this performance was that the director got really excoriated by the critics by casting one person to play both like pairs of the twins or whatever. And I was like, yeah, well, I, I, don't wanna, I don't want to get in, do any spoilers, but I would love to know how that works, you know? Right. The all, When they appear... We're just going to go ahead and spoil the play. Okay, just spoil it. Maybe. It's a comedy. Right. <laughs> There's a peaceful and happy resolution, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, they put the actor side by side with his twin, and they do that split screen thing that they do sometimes. Oh, okay, okay. So this wasn't a it wasn't a live performance. It was no. Um, oh, that would have been incredible. Like I, I was like, world, how like you cast I would love twins? To do that. Right, <laughs> right. <be> amazing. <laughs> right, that would be amazing. No, they yeah. they did like. You know, the 1985 version of special effects. Okay. That's really cool, actually. I kind of love that. It was really cool and horribly frustrating because I was like, wait, who is this? I'm okay. so confused. Can I do one other just like weird trivia bit and then we'll actually start talking about the play? Yes, of course. The guy who played Dromeo, you're too young, I think, to appreciate this, was um, Roger Daltrey, lead singer of The Who. <gasps> Oh, that's pretty cool. Right. And he was pretty yeah. good. Really? Yes, he was pretty good. He apparently was like a pretty good actor in his day. And don't ask me how. He like came off tour with The Who and he's like, I'm going to go ahead and do a Shakespeare role. And he played I'm Romeo. Ready both parts. I'm ready for Shakespeare. I have, I have with, done rock and roll. Yeah. And I'm ready for Shakespeare. <laughs> I've blown up enough speakers and destroyed enough guitars. <laughs> I'm going to play Romeo. Okay. Um, I love it. Nora, was this your first time encountering this play or had you seen it before at some point? Um, yeah, I had. I had read it uh, before and I had also seen a production, um, a local production many years ago. Um, but I'd never, I'd never really studied it, yeah. uh, you know, very closely before. Yeah. Do you remember much about the earlier performances that you saw? Were you like intrigued by the play? 
Yeah, I, I was intrigued. Uh, this particular performance, it it wasn't um, it wasn't it wasn't a super polished performance. Uh, there was there were some choices. Yeah. Um, but I will say, I since studying it a little bit more, I have um, I have forgiven some of the choices that I I sort of uh, looked down my nose at the first time. Uh, and one of the choices was the. Um, was including uh, some some musical numbers. Uh uh-uh. okay. Um okay. In the in the production. Now the particular musical numbers that were chosen were interesting. Um, do you remember what they were? Oh I do. Yeah. I do. What were they? T- I've got to know. <laughs> uh, I know. Uh the so the the play opens with the the this man, this father, yeah, um, who has come from Syracuse to Ephesus, right? Yeah. And uh the two cities have decided that people are not allowed to go between the two cities. Right. Uh-huh. Um, so he's in trouble for being there. And so he, the play opens with him um, in I don't know, cuffs or, you know, he's, he's imprisoned. Right. And uh, so he is telling his story um, as to why he's there. So the, the way that they had this character present that information was to sing um, somebody to love. Really? Yeah. Yeah, and I don't. I don't think he was a singer. This actor. <laughs> oh my gosh! This this <laughs> was, performance was it a performance or was it a fiasco? Oh, I mean, it was. I it was it was a performance. Like there, there were some really there were some really good performances okay. in it. Yeah. Just yeah, uh, and and even like some of the musical performances were were really entertaining. I did not understand how they fit the storyline like that one. <laughs> um, but. Uh, it was certainly entertaining for sure. So all that to say, I was really glad to have another pass at this play. <laughs> I, I want to say, you're, if, if you're listening to Nora kind of not really say something, I, I'm going to interpret that as <laughs> you direct plays, you act in plays, you know how difficult it is, and, and you're reluctant, as am I, to be overly critical of directorial performances because we've been on the other side and we've had to make hard decisions with, Oh yeah. Um, and you don't always have all the talent at your disposal that you want to have. Right. So, yeah. So you're being very delicate. Um, and I really appreciate that. My translation is, this was a fiasco performance. It was, you know, I <laughs> laughed very hard during that. <laughs> I, I had a great time. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Um, okay, so this was a chance to kind of redeem the play. So I'm going to ask you just in a second about just overall impressions of the play. But first, let's do a little plot work. So yeah, as you mentioned, the play is set in the city of Ephesus. So those who are familiar with the Christian New Testament, the book of Ephesians, I believe this is the same you know, this is a really prominent city in the ancient Near East, and it's basically a farce that begins with a tragedy. So the tragedy part is a bookend. It shows up, this tragic figure, Aegon, I'm going to say, has twin sons. He shows up at the beginning and at the end, and we don't see him all throughout the play. But Aegon has twin sons, both named Antiphilus. I don't know how that worked, but we can talk about that later. And at their birth, he bought another pair of newborn sons who ended up both being named 
Dromeo. I don't remember how that worked either, but that's the facts of the matter. Um, and Aegon loses his wife in a shipwreck. He loses one of his sons in a shipwreck. He loses one of the Dromios in a shipwreck. And we're kind of presuming that this shipwreck claimed three people's lives and saved three people's lives. But we, the audience, find out that no, the twin son and the twin servant managed to survive. They've been living in Syracuse and now they have just come back to visit Ephesus. Okay, now, the Antipholus that is in Ephesus is married. He's married and so a lot of the hijinks happens when the non-married Antipholus meets the wife of the married Antipholus and she thinks that she's married to him and he's like, I've never seen you before in my life. And I I thought that was kind of some of the funniest parts of the play when the, the wife's kind of confusion around that and the husband's confusion around that. I thought that was really clever. Again, once I figured out that one actor was playing the same character twice. Okay, anyway. Um, so that's the setup for the play. Um, so two questions to you, Nora. First, overall impressions of the play. And second, you did a little research and found out that uh, Shakespeare, who's known to steal a plot, stole this <laughs> plot also. But first, tell us overall impressions of uh, Comedy of Errors. Yeah. So upon this reading of it, um, it it struck me, uh, and this I suppose is a, a commentary on this play, but also on a lot of the of Shakespeare's comedies. These um, hugely alarming stakes that are in mm. so many of his of his uh, things that are supposed to be comedies, right? Um, like shipwrecked, separated at birth, right? right? Um, also, you know, like I said in the in the beginning, you know, you you came from Ephesus or you came to Ephesus from Syracuse, so now you have to die. Like, yeah. whoa, that's yeah. that's really serious, you know. Um, and and it's it's so many of his plays that have these the the structure of the play is within these like really extreme stakes. Um, you know, if you don't marry this man, you're going to die. Yeah, right. Uh, right. In the Taming of the Shrew, if you don't get married, your sister can't get married. Um, totally. All's well that ends well, for heaven's sake, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, though we just, um, our Shakespeare Festival was just part of uh, the Winter's Tale at Marshall, which is like, hardly can be called a comedy, honestly. I know. Um, it's so extreme. Um, and so I got to thinking about that and how um, the device of these really huge stakes um, is just something that is understood in Shakespeare. And um, and I don't know, I, I kind of thought that it was, it can be far-fetched, it can uh -huh. be kind of ridiculous, but um, I feel like we do the same thing now. We just don't, they're, they're just different things. Um, so things that we just sort of accept as part of the premise of a story because it is in this, framework right like um i'm thinking right now because it's the season it particularly of um like hallmark christmas movies uh -huh. right like yeah. there are some stakes in those movies that you're like yeah build houses for elephants okay right <laughs> right right, right. Um, okay i i have to interrupt you because i 
on my Instagram feed, there's this woman who makes one minute Hallmark. They're kind of like farces yeah. of one minute Hallmark videos. Yes. Um, or video or, or Hallmark movies. And they're so good because she really points out what you're talking about that the stakes are sometimes so insane and the kind right. of hurdles that the two lovers must cross in order to end up with each other are so kind of dumb, but we forget all of it because we want so badly for the couple to be together. So for example, right. um, the man, the love interest in the Hallmark movie, he lost his wife, his wife died and they've got two children and then he meets the girl of his dream who usually like was his high school girlfriend and they broke up because they didn't understand each other. And she's now made it in the big city. She's back from the big city and she meets the guy. The guy's always named Luke and Luke has two kids. <laughs> and when they get together, she's going to like immediately move in. And you're like, wait, with the two kids that are like just kids, like who've just lost their mom, we just right. gloss over how complicated that might be, right? Right. And we're just like, right. yeah, as long as they got, as long as Luke and Lauren got together, everything's cool. And it's the same thing in this, I think, that we. I think so too. Right? I mean, I think yeah. you're, you're making a great point that the stakes are so high. But for me, I always just forget about the stakes and just get on with all the complications of the comedy. Yeah, I, and I think it's because we we understand what we're what we're watching, right? We or we understand what we're reading. When we watch a Hallmark movie, you know, we're we're doing that on purpose. We're there to see a Hallmark movie. Right. We don't want to see gritty reality. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Like that's that's what we're looking for. Um and so I think, you know, Shakespeare has a form and his comedies take that form and some of them more so than others, but it's just part of the device yeah. that we accept, right? It's exactly right. Um, now, Shakespeare is want to steal a plot. I mean, almost every one of his plots, we think that the exception is maybe Midsummer Night's Dream, that he just kind of like invented this plot wholesale. But there's almost always an er play, like you are, an er play a prototype that Shakespeare takes and he amends it, he adds characters, he subtracts characters, he adds complications, whatever. And this one is no exception. Is that right? That's right. I, I knew already about um, The Servant of Two Masters um, mm. by Goldini, I believe, um, the Italian playwright. Yeah. But that would have been after after Shakespeare. Um, but I was actually uh, preparing for a, a theater history class that I'm going to be teaching and uh, was studying the Roman playwright Plautus. Um, and he wrote the OG comedy of errors. Uh -huh. And I'm, I'm struggling to pronounce it. Uh, Manikmi, uh, I think is how you say it. Um, but it's, it's plot wise. It is exactly, uh, it is two, two sets of twins separated at birth tragic circumstances um and and one of them is seeking the other and even one of them is from Syracuse the yeah. exact same um city that uh that Shakespeare used so um that sort of learning about that and then learning about the drama at the time of of Plautus writing this comedy um is sort of uh 
maybe understand the, the form of the comedy of errors a little bit more. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because the, so the, just really quickly, what I, what I discovered was that the, the Romans, um, were, were borrowing from the Greeks and, uh, took a lot of Greek styles and comedy, but, uh, made it, uh, much bigger and mm. ended up a little bit, um, and a little bit, um, less lofty. Uh, in yeah. its appeal, so it was more like appealing to to a broader spectrum of people. Um, made it a little bit bodier, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there were musical elements that would have been added to these comedies. Um, so, like the characters conveying things through song, uh, for instance, or or the chorus, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Not the character itself, but the chorus would would add uh, music. Uh, so the the production that I sort of looked down on, um, I had to kind of eat my words a little bit <laughs> when I <laughs> because it resembled like this ancient Roman I, production a little bit. I well, I don't know if I would go that far. No, no, no. Um, what, what were you going to say? What were you going to say? <laughs> no, no, because because it, I mean, it really did add um, the, the musical element to it. Uh, and in fact, I, I watched a version when you, when you brought up the version that you watched. I thought this was the one you were going to mention. Um, but this was a stage version with um, Roger Reese, if you're familiar with him, a, a Welsh actor. Oh. Um, he's fabulous. He he was on um, The West Wing. He was uh, one of my favorite characters on The West like Wing. Like he was a regular on West Wing or he was a... He, he was Lord John Marbury. I love that guy in West Wing. Yeah, Roger I Reese. I yeah, so He played um, Antiphilus of Syracuse. Okay. Yeah, the non-married one. Yeah. yeah. He played... The one of Syracuse and uh, Judy Dench uh, played the the wife of Antiphilus. Of, no um, kidding. And they added musical numbers too, <laughs> and they were ridiculous. They were absolutely ridiculous really? musical numbers. Yes, yes. So I had to. You had to eat your words about the production back. that you saw. Yeah. Something tells yeah. me though, Nora, their production quality was perhaps <laughs> a bit higher than the production that you saw. Well, they didn't use Queen songs. That's that's yeah. true. <laughs> they didn't have queens. I want to go back to something you said that um, the Romans liked to kind of like borrow from the Greeks. This is a known thing about Roman society is they artistically love to kind of like rip off the Greeks and then kind of poke fun at the Greeks at the same time. It's a funny, it's a funny relationship the Romans and the Greeks, because the Romans are so indebted to the Greeks, but at the same time, they would kind of look down their nose at the Greeks, and you're kind of like, you guys, everything of literary and artistic quality that you got, you got it from the Greeks. You guys got concrete, Romans. You got concrete, and you got like, you know, incredible armies, which the Romans, the Greeks had sometimes also. So, but don't look down your nose at the Greeks when you're stealing everything from them. I think they would say that, well, we did it better. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think so. Okay. I, I, I wonder if the if it's an overlap, <laughs> it's a little bit about like the way that Americans kind of rip off British stuff. Like the British stuff it tends to can, can be a little bit more refined. And then we kind of add some fart jokes and make it American or something like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. We really yeah. cowboy it up. Yeah, yeah, we cowboy it up. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. Okay. <laughs> um, so upon rereading, you liked the play. You laughed at the play. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, certainly. What did you make of the tragic beginning 
this father having lost a son, a wife, a servant, did you forget about that tragic beginning quickly or did, or did this, when it turned comedic, did, was that kind of lingering in the back of your mind as this kind of, I don't know, dark overcast to the play? No, I, I did forget about it pretty quickly because what happens is the the father comes in and he tells the story of how they were all separated um, and the officer uh, says, okay, I will give you a little bit of grace because I feel sorry for you. So what you have to do is you have to get a big sum of money, mm. uh, call all your friends that you know in Ephesus, get the money, or I'm going to behead you. Uh-huh. And like, and then he just goes away until yeah. the end of the play. Yeah. Um. So, you know, literally the entire play, this guy's life is on the line. You know, you don't, he, I don't think he's anywhere else in the play, is he? Besides the very beginning and the very end. Right, right. In, yeah. in the production that I saw, I liked this choice by the director. The director had Aegon wandering around the city silently while okay. all the hol- all the hijinks would kind of like happen after he left the stage or whatever. And I I appreciated that because it does kind of remind us that yeah, this this old man's life is at stake and are they gonna get together? And so it did right. add kind of a dark overcast to the play. And I appreciated I, that. Yeah, I think it would. And and maybe that's part of you know, I I always like to figure out how to make these plays work as performances today. Mm. Mm. Um, and maybe that's part of what today's audiences, um, maybe they want a little bit more realism than this play necessarily offers on the page. Um, and so maybe having that character and and remind the audience of the stakes yeah. of the play uh, sort of makes it a little bit more urgent for the audience. You, there's another question I wanted to ask you and we kind of have just stumbled upon it. How much um, disbelief must we bring to this play? You know, like if 10 is, this is so completely unbelievable, we are, we have to just like close our eyes to actually imagine any of this actually happening on stage. And then one is, no, it just requires just a little like seasoning of disbelief and we can get, you know, we can get the rest of the way ourselves pretty easily. One to 10, how much do we have to suspend disbelief? I I would have said, I I really would have said, especially once you get past the premise, like premise of double twins. Yeah, yeah. They end up separated, whatever. Okay, okay, we got the premise, but then we have the rest of the play. I would have said pretty low. I would have said, you know, maybe two or three. Uh, but then it occurred to me, we are told the the brother that is from Syracuse has come to Ephesus specifically to seek his twin brother mm-hmm. <laughs> and has brought the twin. Dromeo. Um, has, has brought the twin of the other. So both of those know that they are twins. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So when people and they've never been to this city before, so when people are mistaking them for someone else, it 
just never occurred to them that they that's might a great think point. that they're, that's they're such the a great twins. point. That is such a great point. It never occurred to me until you said this. Right, right. When people are acting all crazy, like, hey, remember when I gave you that necklace and tip? Yeah, yeah. Hey, you're my you're my husband. Right, right, right. Hey, yeah, right. My husband, Um, you know, like, what are we having for dinner? Why are you asking me what are we having for dinner or whatever it is? Never seen you before, lady. Right. Wouldn't it occur to them that there's a twin that looks exactly like them wandering around the city? And they even say, um, they they even say like, man, the people here are so weird. This uh-huh. place is full of witches. We yeah, have to get right. out of here. That's right. <laughs> we got to get out of here. People are so <laughs> weird here. Okay, there's a twin of you, and you knew right. it when you like, came and here. You came here to find him, right? <laughs> That's a really great point, and I hate to say it, but now I'm kind of like, William, but come on. <laughs> You could have cleaned that up a little bit anyway. I know I'm not wrong about that, am I? They that that is why the twin came. I Ephesus, think right? so. I think so. If we missed it, then someone is okay. yelling at us through their car speakers. <laughs> I apologize. Someone. We apologize. Yeah, we'll we'll <laughs> we'll take our uh punishment later. You can send it you can you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram, and you can be I'll, like, I'll uh, find a way to produce this play. That'll be my. That my would be a great. Okay, let's talk about that. Would you? Let's imagine that you get to do with comedy of errors what you've gotten to do with Julius Caesar. Um, yeah. Would you do it? So, but first, tell us a little bit about your position at Alchemy Theater, and tell us what you got to do with Julius Caesar, and before that, with um. Oh my gosh, what's wrong with uh, me? Taming of the Shrew. Taming of the Shrew. Yeah, yeah. So I'm um, I'm executive director for Alchemy Theater, which is a, a local um, theater here in Huntington. And um, a couple years ago, we started a um, an educational touring series called On the Road with West Virginia Shakes um, through a grant that we got through the Humanities Council here, um, which allows us to, we, we take a Shakespeare and we pare it down um, to make it shorter. And we also pare it down to only include um, 10 or fewer actors. Uh, no no costumes to speak of, only t-shirts and jeans generally. Um, sometimes if you want to portray a woman, you do t-shirt and skirts, yeah. um, but not necessary. Um, and a, a couple acting blocks and a, a handful of props. Um, and so in that manner, we toured uh, two years ago in the fall, um, we toured the Taming of the Shrew, and then this past fall, um, actually last month, we just finished up uh, touring the tragedy of Julius Caesar um, to local high schools um, in uh, in our area, and uh, it's it was great. It's a great way to present Shakespeare um, to lots and lots of students. Uh, Shakespeare isn't something that's produced a lot mm. around here, um, and uh, it's it's. It always involves a, a talk back as well with the with the students, um, and a lot of times the teachers will um, have them read the play in preparation for our visit or after our visit. So um, just all around, it's it's a great way to expose students to Shakespeare um, in general. I, I want to interrupt you and just say, I saw your performance of Julius Caesar when I came up and spoke at the West Virginia Shakespeare Festival, and. I just want to kind of paint the picture for our audience. You guys were performing in a, what do they call it? An 
like it's a lunchatorium or it's a cafetorium. Cafetorium. That's right. Yep. These are like (laughs) very difficult performance spaces. You've got all the kids sitting on plastic chairs and you're up on a stage and the stage is kind of shallow. Like it's maybe 12 feet deep at the most. And you've got like a black curtain backdrop, very little staging ability. Like you said, you've only got 10 actors max. Um, and it was so great, and the, the the audience was so into it, and the talk they back, were, weren't they? They were, they were so great. into yeah. it, Nora. They were. Nora played great. Mark Antony. She just yeah. nailed it. It was so good, <laughs> and the students were really enthralled. And I, yeah, I cannot express how much respect and affection I have for that kind of production because, like you said, if Shakespeare is not being performed in an area. No 15-year-old kid is going, going to, on a Friday night, say to his mom and dad, you guys, let's watch Julius Caesar on Netflix. That's just not going to happen. And so to have the greatest dramatist maybe in world history absent from their minds is a total tragedy. And you guys are right. doing something to rectify that in your area. Thanks. It's, yeah. Um- and, you know, like like I've said many times on here that Shakespeare was never meant to be read, yeah. right, as as literature. But a lot of times in schools, that's the option that is that is given. Um, so when we compare that with an actual performance, um, even if it's a pared down one, uh, it's, it's really cool to see uh, how the kids receive that. And like you said, man, that audience was so great. They were in the funeral scene. They were... Yeah. Ranting and rave. It was it was awesome. Yeah. It was great. It was so great. now imagine that your troupe had to perform comedy of errors. I mean, I guess my question yeah. is, would you choose to perform comedy of errors? Could you pull it off? I absolutely would. Really? I would love to take this on tour. Yes, I would, because I think there's so much opportunity for um physical and slapstick mm. uh, comedy in this one. Um and I think the kids would eat it up. I think it's a it's an easy in for them to um, experience the language, experience this apparently ancient uh, yeah. trope, yeah. right? Um, yeah, I, I think I think it would be diff- I think there would be some challenges. I think the number of performers would be maybe an obstacle, you know, for us if we're trying to keep it to a to a very small number. But oh yeah, I think it would be excellent. Uh, and, and I think it would be great to talk with student audiences about because I think the students would first point out like this is ridiculous, right? This right. is absolutely ridiculous, and we could say, yeah, it totally is ridiculous. Yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah, yeah, you could have so much fun with it. Yeah, for me, Nora, one of the best parts about the play was this little interaction between Adriana and Antiphilus because there's you know the intimacy of the marriage is presumed by Adriana, but she's not talking to her husband. She's talking to her, to his distant twin, who, of course, she doesn't even really know exists. But I want to play just a little bit of this scene from Act 5, Scene 1 from A Comedy of Errors. This is from the Royal Shakespeare Company in 2021. I see two husbands, or mine eyes deceive me. One of these is genius to the other. And so are these, which is the natural man, and which the spirit, 
Who deciphers them? I, sir, Andromeo, command him away. I, sir, Andromeo, pray let me stay. Phygia, nor thou not, or else his ghost. <laughs> My old master! Who has bound him here? Whoever bound him, I will loose his bonds and gain a husband by his liberty. <laughs> Aegean, if thou beest the man that hadst a wife once called Emilia, that bore thee at a burden two fair sons, oh, if thou beest the same Aegean, speak and speak unto the same Emilia. Why, here begins his morning story, right? These two Antiphilus, these two so like, and these two Dromeos, one in semblance, besides his urging of her wreck at sea, these are the parents to these children, which accidentally are met together. If I dream not, thou art Emilia. If thou beest she, tell me, where is that sun that floated with thee on the fatal raft? By men of Epidamnum, he and I... And the twin Dromeo all were taken up. But by and by, rude fishermen of Corinth by force took Dromeo and my son from them. And me, they left with those of Epidamnum. What then became of them? I cannot tell. I, to this fortune that you see me in... Antiphilus! Thou camest from Corinth first. Uh, no, sir, not I. I came from Syracuse. No, state, Stand apart. I know not which is which. <laughs> I came from Corinth, my most gracious lord. And I with him. Brought to this town by that most famous warrior, Duke Menaphon, your most renowned uncle. Which of you two did dine with me today? That was Act 5, Scene 1 of Comedy of Errors, in which Adriana married to one of the Antipholuses, says, I see two husbands or my eyes deceive me. This is the beginning of our resolution to the plot, Nora, but I want to ask you first about Adriana. Um, would you like to play her? That's always a real test for me of how much I like a character, or how much I can kind of like sink my teeth into a character. Would you enjoy acting her in a production of A Comedy of Errors? I, I think she would be a lot of fun to play. Um, but actually, I think I would prefer to play her sister. Oh, would you really? How come? L Luciana, uh, because there's a really funny uh, plot point where, um, so the wrong Antiphilus, so not Adriana's husband, yeah. has has come to the house and Luciana, her sister, is there and he um, attempts to woo yeah. Luciana. Right. Uh, and of course, she's like, spurning him because this is what she believes to be her sister's husband her brother-in-law right um and then of course she she tells adriana everything and, and all of that um but in the end when all of the twins are are found out uh the the other twin and luciana they end up getting together so right. i think there there's a lot of opportunity for um for comedy there as well because she, um, and she then, she's trying to do the right thing but she's she also kind of yeah. like, man, Antiphilus is kind of hot. But like, dang, yeah, I wish I, 
do yeah yeah <laughs> and and um there's another scene that happens before that where she the Adriana is angry that her husband uh hasn't come home in time for dinner and uh Luciana she goes through this whole thing where she's like well you know you have to understand he is a man yeah. and you are just a woman so you <laughs> right. need to understand it it's it's hilarious um she's not being funny about it she's being serious yeah. but um i think it would be a blast to play something like that i can totally see that I can absolutely yeah. see that. It's interesting yeah. that these two women help create all the problems in the play. And it's a woman who basically draws our play to its conclusion. The yes, abbess. Such a typical Shakespeare thing, I know. too, to bring somebody in in Act 5 that you've never seen yep. before. And yep. this person just ties up everything. <laughs> and the abbess, we discover satisfies both plots, both the comedic plot that she comes in and she's right. like, hey, whoever bound this Antiphilus, loose his bonds, and yeah. you guys are married again. And she also turns out to be, surprise, the wife of Aegon, who thought that he had lost his wife in the shipwreck. Oh my gosh, it's wonderful. There's like a rekindled marriage another rekindled marriage and a third marriage between Antiphilus of Syracuse and the sister of uh, Adriana. Brothers marrying sisters. It's amazing. Wild. It's yes. just amazing. Yeah. This is <laughs> just a little bit of, um, I don't know, nerdy Shakespeare stuff. This is the chief marker of a comedy. It's not just yes. the laughs, but it's marriage at the end. And here well, we and get sometimes that's the only marker of a comedy, yes. right? Oh my gosh. Right. Right. Because you mentioned a winter, the winter's tale earlier. There's a whole question. Yeah. Okay. Is this a comedy? Cause there's not a funny moment in that. No, that's not true. There are some funny moments in the play, but the overall plot line, yeah. the main plot line in Sicily is so dark. It's so dark. It's, it's so funny. I, I went to see it um, at Marshall university uh, here in Huntington, and I went with my good friend, and she had never she'd never read it. She's mm. pretty new to Shakespeare in general. And I said, "Oh, don't look up anything about it. I just yeah. I want you to just blind react. I want yeah. you to know." And she's like, "Okay, but is it like a comedy or a tragedy?" I says, "It's a comedy." And she looked at me at intermission, and she was like, "Yeah, hilarious! It's so <laughs> funny." <laughs> like, yeah, right. So, and they they took their intermission um whenever like right when everyone died. Um, oh my gosh. So like, before the move to Bohemia. Bef yeah, yeah, second act opened in Bohemia. So, I mean, actually, I believe the last scene was the exit pursued by bear. No I way. The last, yeah. So, like, you've got this guy got mauled by a bear. This woman seemingly died, passed out, you know, and her because she heard that her son had died, like the baby is gone and it's. Wild. Everything uh, is bleak in that moment. Uh, so, so, and then it, you know, it, but it ends with a wedding. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It ends with a rekindled marriage and a wedding, like yep. you were saying. Exactly. Um, and sometimes that's the only separation <laughs> between comedies Absolutely. and tragedies. Absolutely. Yeah. The Winter's Tale, because it happens so late in his overall body of yeah. work, Shakespeare's body of work, it's sometimes grouped with these other kind of fantastical plays like The Tempest. And I prefer to think of it more as a fantasy, even though it does have those markers of marriage at the end that would, you know, make us call it yes. um, 
accommodate. But the magical element that's there right. um, that isn't really, it, he doesn't use it a lot. No, in, in he a lot doesn't of his use other it a plays. lot. There's nothing magical in Comedy of Errors. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of times magic could explain things or fix things. Um, but he doesn't, he, he's very sparing with his very. use. So I agree. It's, it's sort of a different categorization. Comedy of Errors on the timeline, since we're talking about the timeline, we were just oh, talking yeah. about The Winner's Tale. That's one of the last, we think, four plays that he wrote. This play, Comedy of Errors, is one of the first four that he wrote. Um, okay. And one thing that always sticks out to me about his very earliest plays is that he loves some logical quibbles. He loves <laughs> yes. to have these little word games like in Two Gentlemen of Verona, there's one scene which is basically these two men like restating different definitions of one word. And you're like, Yes. What are we doing the here, puns. bro? Yeah, pun, pun, oh, pun, pun, pun. He loves, pun. He loves it. And I wonder, yes. I just imagine him, you know, early in his career because he is the great wordsmith and he's just having so much fun with his dexterity with words. But sometimes I oh, wonder gosh. if, you know, like one of his actors pulled him aside and was like, Hey, so scene two's kind of dragging a little bit. I wonder if we could cut like <laughs> these five pages of puns and quibbles that you have, you know? And he's kind of like, yeah, okay, yes. I get it, Burbage. I'll move on now, you know? Cause it's not like they disappear later in the plays. They certainly don't, but they're, they're just less prominent. And I, yes. <laughs> and I and think his plays are better given, And that, that gives us an opportunity to talk about the, the Dromeos, uh, because I take it back what I said about Luciana. I would so much rather play one of the Dromeos. Okay. Sure. So if you like get to yeah. play comedy of errors, you can, you can cast yourself as one of the Dromeos. Dromeos <laughs> right? were so fun. I love the Dromeos. Oh, they're hysterical. Oh my goodness. And they have so much of that, um, Honey banter, yes, uh, back and forth. I, I'm trying to trying to remember one. He talks about um, having a mark, and he's like, "Yep, I've got your mark here, and her mark here, and uh -huh. her mark here." And just, <laughs> yeah, you know, equivocates on those terms. Uh, they're so funny. Um, but yeah, but that's you know that's another um, another potential problem in, in some of Shakespeare's comedies. Um, there is violence. Yeah. Right. Like we talked about it with the Taming of the Shrew, um, but like, man, these Dromeos—they are abused. They are. <laughs> they get whacked around by and both Antiphiluses and uh, by Adriana, and um, and it's you know, I think you have to play it slapstick. Uh -huh. Um, but it's that's a that's a I guess a modern problem maybe. Yeah. Uh, is is how to handle violence against right you know, right sermons. yeah you either have to do it sort of like do you remember the three stooges way back in the day oh yeah like oh the, yeah. All, yeah, the, yeah the paradigm of slapstick comedy and even yes. when they're you know like poking each other in the eyes you know like it's a gag it's it hurts right. you know but it, we know it doesn't really hurt and it seems like you have to choose if you're directing this play am i going to do the comedy Three Stooges style, or am I going to do the comedy in a way that actually kind of makes the audience wince a little bit? And I wonder, which would you choose? Right. Would you do slapstick or would you make the audience hurt a little bit? I don't know. I, I think you'd have to think about the 
the story you want to tell, right? So, yeah. so the perspective that you want to tell, um, which you have to decide for every every play that you produce. Um, if you want it to be more realistic or or more, um, if you wanted to try and modernize it a little bit, um, you could do something like having the father in the background mm-hmm. of a lot of scenes, like you mentioned, and taking the violence a little bit more seriously and having the Dromeos actually be hurt by them. Right. Um, but if you, if you wanted to really lean into the comedic nature and, and for instance, if you were going to add music or, or things like that, um, I would certainly go the slapstick route. Yeah. Um, but you know, and a lot of times with, with Shakespeare, when, when we're, uh, actually fully producing it rather than um, touring it, we we make the decision to uh, locate it uh, non-traditionally, either traditionally or non-traditionally. Um, so I think if you were going to locate it in a time and place that was not the time and place in which it was written, um, you might need to have those more serious yeah. elements. Yeah. Um, d- just depending, depending on what the, you know, what what the paradigm is in which we're setting this play it, it seems like one of the big questions that you would have to solve is how tragic to play that beginning you know because if you play that tragic beginning full it strikes me that doing slapstick violence probably is not going to work it undermines right. the kind of that that tinge of sadness that we established at the beginning of the play right yeah i i think so um it, you, you almost have to give the audience permission to laugh it off yeah a little bit or or to forget about it um i think you can't you can't do both you cannot both remind them of these horrible stakes and expect them to think it's hilarious when a guy gets knocked over a chair yeah right 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 you got to kind of pick a lane yeah i think so uh nora you're executive director of Alchemy Theater, Huntington, West Virginia. What are you guys working on now? I'm going to tell you, I have a cheat code. You have a shirt on that previews your next <laughs> show. Um, I do. If we were in Huntington, what would we be seeing next on Alchemy's stage? Uh, so this is our final production of 2023. We are producing um, a cozy finale. So the reason I was thinking about Hallmark uh, movies earlier was because uh, this is a Hallmark Christmas play. Uh, it's it's a Hallmark movie on stage, and it uh, utilizes all of the Hallmarkian tropes. Um, and this is the third in a trilogy. Uh, so two years ago, we produced A Cozy Christmas. Uh, last year, we produced A Cozy Wedding. And this year's is A Cozy Finale. And is it, so, are they meant to be, how do I say this? Are we laughing more at the tropes? Like we're in on the joke, or are we actually, are we heartwarmed by that everything works out in the end. Yes. So um, the the writers were very specific in that this is not tongue in cheek. Okay. Um, this is this is sincere. It okay. is to be taken sincerely. And and I have to say, like that was hard for me the first year because I am I'm not like you, Tim. I am not a big Hallmark Christmas movie. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you're going through that plot, and I'm like, oh, you know a lot about Hallmark. It's <laughs> <laughs> right. Um. So it was tough for me, uh, but it it's really very sweet. It's um, and it's not. I mean, some of it is far fetched, but it's it's not 
it's not crazy. Uh, I mean, this year's probably the most far-fetched. There's a there's a princess that shows up in town. Uh, so that's that's the central plot of this one. <laughs> that's great. Last year, the town villain uh, was visited by three ghosts and found his Christmas spirit. Oh, I love it. I love it. He yeah, needed to yeah. find his See, Christmas and it, spirit. And it feels really nice. And and by this point, you know, all the characters are established. So you're like, okay, there's the one that's probably Santa Claus, right? And yep. Yep. Yeah. That so, sounds but fun. But it's really and fun. You, it's, it's a really great local tradition. You're directing, you're acting both? Um, I am acting. And uh, until today, I was directing. <laughs> uh, so The Winter's Tale, the production I mentioned, um, was part of the Shakespeare Festival and actually involved, well, featured our artistic director, Mike Murdoch, as um, Leontes, the uh, the really terrible king in The Winter's Tale. So he's been gone. So in his absence, I have been directing, but uh, he's back tonight. And so I can just be an actor. Oh, that's great. great. That's congratulations. Yeah. Um, thanks, do you thanks. look at Mike having played Leontes, this terrible, terrible character? Do you look at Mike a little bit differently now? I mean, I, I keep him at arm's length for yeah. sure. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a quick story and then we're going to wrap up the show. I was in uh, a play called The Rabbit Hole. and um, I played Howie. The plot of the play is that Howie and Becca have lost their, I think, 10-year-old son before the play begins. And it's the story of them trying to keep their marriage together. It's it's a really hard play, and it's a really, oddly enough, funny play because you kind of have to play these comedic moments or you just won't make it through the play. Um, I had someone come to see the show that I was in, and all of the women in the show turn against Howie, my character at various points, because he's grieving. Sometimes he's grieving in pretty difficult ways. A couple months after I was done, this woman who came to see the show found my email address through a mutual friend. And she said, Hey, I saw your show. I had some questions about it. Could we get coffee? And I was like, sure. That sounds great. Oh, wow. That's so awesome. we go out to coffee and she, I mean, I walked into the door of the coffee shop and I only barely knew this person. And I could tell by the way she was looking at me, like I was in trouble. Again, I've barely met this person like one time through an acquaintance or something like that. So I sit down for coffee, a little bit of small talk. And then she says, okay, I really want to talk to you about the way you were treating your wife. And I promise you, I promise oh, you, no. Nora. And at one time, I was both like, "Like I'm not I Howie. Like, I know, I know. I'm not Howie. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. That wasn't me. Right. I was playing the lines. I was playing the lines apparently oh too goodness. effective. I'll wow. Tell you, I'll tell you one other thing about that play. <clears throat> there's a line where there, there, there's a scene in which Howie is trying to get his wife to go to bed with him because since their yes. son died, there's all sorts of, you can imagine acrimony between right, they've been them. Separated right. Since then. Right. Totally. Right, right. And yeah. so he's massaging her shoulders and she says, and she kind of finally kind of like wakes up like, Oh, I see what you're doing. And he says, what? She says, you're trying to get me to go to bed with you. And he said, yeah, I am. And, yeah. and the lines are something like she says, he says, well, it's been eight months. And I and I say those lines 
and there's a woman in the audience. She, after I say, well, it's been eight months, there's a woman in the audience that says, oh my God. Like, <laughs> like you pig, pig. you pig. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, I took it as like, okay, the play is really taking hold of people. If they're engaging yes. on this level, it must be doing something right. So yes. anyway. Anyway, yeah, so the trials yeah, we, and travails of errors, of, of actors, of right? actors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we definitely can't uh, can't let them do that with comedy of errors because right. <laughs> they take it that seriously. We are never getting out of it. Totally, totally, <laughs> totally. Yeah, you'd have, you'd have, to, yeah, that would be a huge problem. <laughs> hey, Nora, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. If you are in Huntington, West Virginia, please check out Alchemy Theater. You're going to be really happy with what they're doing over there. Um, and I'm going to leave you with a little bit of this, with this one of these one-minute Hallmark card videos um, that you can find on Instagram. I think you'll appreciate this. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on the Comedy of Errors podcast on The Play's The Thing. Boss, are you yelling at my nameless coworker for something she actually did and does deserve to get in trouble for? Fire me instead. Since I have no family, I don't really spend that much money this time of year. I do have family. I just don't know them. I've always wanted to go overseas to go meet them. That would be a great use of the last of my credit. Handsome seatmate, you're extremely rude, and I'm being extremely rude about it. Sorry, I've just never been on a plane before. I didn't know they went all the way up into the sky. Wow, all the CG Christmas decorations are so beautiful. Oh, Hi, you again. Keep running into each other everywhere. I don't even know your name. Luke, if you could stop following me, that would be great. I'm trying to find my family lineage. No, as a matter of fact, I'm not having great luck. My last name is... The look on your face indicates that that name is extremely significant to you, but I'm going to ice skate right past it. When I was a little girl... Wow, that must have been really hard. What do you mean you have something to show me? This was my family's estate? Oh, Tannenbaum, this place is huge. Your family has been taking care of the property for generations. I just have to sign a few papers and I own it. It's so great that government stuff is so easy. After a brief misunderstanding about something that happened 300 years ago between people that aren't us, why don't you give me a kiss in the gazebo and I guess we can just move in together. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.